0: death. It's something every single one of us is going to face, but it's something a lot of us don't really want to talk about. Well, listeners, we're going to talk about this today, and we hope to leave you more comfortable with the topic once you listen to this episode with Shoshana Berger. Shoshana works as the global editorial director at IDEO, where she worked on a project with Zen Hospice on how to create a better end-of-life experience. And as a result of that project, Shoshana then went on to write the book, A Beginner's Guide to the End, Practical Advice for Living Life and Facing Death, with Dr. B.J. Miller. We talked to Shoshana about why people are so hesitant to talk about facing death, how to better prepare caretakers for this phase of life, and most importantly, how to talk about this phase of life and what you want this phase of life to look like. This is Reconsidering, a podcast about life, and today, death, and how to make it better. I'm Meredith Black.
1: I'm Aaron Walter. I'm Bob Baxley.
0: Welcome to Reconsidering.
2: I'm Shoshana Berger. I am the co-author of a book about the end-of-life experience called A Beginner's Guide to the End with Dr. B.J. Miller. And my day job is working as an executive editor at the global design company, IDEO, where I've been for close to a decade.
3: We always start the episodes with the sort of lightning around questions. Yes. So we have some for you. So oh boy. <laughs> okay. Game
2: show moment.
3: Here we go. You ready? Okay. City or country? Country. Photos or videos? Videos. Color or black and white?
2: Hmm. Black and white.
3: Read or listen? Read. Fully booked or time to explore?
2: Time to explore.
3: Suddenly or slowly?
2: Both. Oh, that's a tough one. Can we toggle?
3: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. (laughs) Dinner for two or table for eight?
2: Table for eight. Harmony
3: or dissonance?
2: Ooh, another yes and... I would say dissonance.
3: Accept or tolerate? Accept. Mourn or move on? Mourn. The beginning or the end? The beginning. Shoshana, thank you so much for joining
1: us on the show. The book was, it was a hard read because it just made me realize there's so much that I haven't considered about death and end of life. That was a little disconcerting for me. But maybe we could start from the beginning and just tell us, how did you and BJ arrive at this idea for writing this book, A Beginner's Guide to the End?
2: Mm. Well, there's nothing like it out there. We don't often think about designing that experience of how we exit the world. We think a lot about how we design the experience of bringing new life into the world Right, We have What to Expect When You're Expecting, which is the book that sold like 90 million copies to every expectant family on the planet. We think a lot about how we celebrate milestones in life, how we celebrate coming of age, when we have a partnership that we want to celebrate and get married. We design all of those experiences to the hilt, and yet we pay absolutely no attention to our denouement, how we senesce, how we age, how we create meaning towards the end of life, and how we want to live out our days. And so BJ thinks a lot about that because he had a near-death experience very early in life in college where he was electrocuted and, and nearly died and spent a lot of time recovering. He had a lot of time to think about how we grapple with suffering, how we grapple with the thought that we will no longer exist. And he dedicated the rest of his life to helping people through that experience and helping them grapple with it. And when I met BJ, I had just dealt with a long five year period of being a caretaker to my father who had dementia. And, you know, he lost everything that kind of made him feel independent and free in life, towards the end of life. And that was a very profound and harrowing experience to witness. And what I realized was how poorly that experience was designed, that we had no idea what questions to ask him about what kind of care he wanted or how he saw himself playing out the end of his life, what quality of life even meant to him? How did he define that? Did it mean that he could still read the four newspapers he loved to read every day? Did it mean that he could still enjoy a bagel by himself? Did it mean that he could take a walk? Identifying what it means to you to live a life that feels worth living is really important and my sister and I had no idea that we should be asking those questions of him until it was too late until he really was too far gone and so we couldn't help him have the kind of experience I think that he probably would have wanted and the thing is is that we are so deeply in denial that we are going to die you know we live in a very young american Culture that feels like, you know, we can forever regenerate and we think of ourselves as invincible. And the problem with that, I mean, it's great to live with hope and not fear, but the problem with that is that you end up ignoring some of these very important conversations and considerations. And I think our culture is pretty unique in that I think there are certainly other cultures that. You know, find death to be taboo and don't want to talk about it. But there are also places where it is a part of life, it's embraced. And I'm mindful of this great old Steve Jobs quote Remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. And I I really feel like that's true that if we use the fact that we are mortal and will die as a foil, And have it inform the choices we make in life, the way that we show up in life, our presence with other people. It can be a great teacher. So anyway, I'm wandering a little bit, but BJ and I met right after losing my father. And I heard from him a very kind of bold, new perspective on how we could design this experience. And I said, more people need to hear this. This needs to be a conversation that our culture has regularly, earlier on, and let's do a TED Talk. So I did help him a little bit with that, and
0: then we pitched the book on the other side of that. Shoshana, this book, thank you so much for writing it. I strongly believe everybody should have a copy of this book, and I think that people should have it earlier in their lives versus later in their lives. I am in that kind of sandwich generation right now where, you know, I think this is a topic that I think about a lot and I didn't have the resources for it. How do you think we can start to normalize this conversation just as we do when babies are born? And like you said, milestones happen. How do we normalize this, especially with the stigma around defying age? and kind of what we go through on a daily basis?
2: Well, there are lots of moments in life that are a great opportunity to bring this up. And, you know, we talk about these milestones throughout life where it feels like a natural moment to have this conversation. For example, when a kid goes and gets their driver's license at the DMV and they're asked whether or not they want to be an organ donor. I mean, that's a pretty... Intense choice for a 16 year old, right? Like they have to consider getting in a catastrophic accident and giving their organs to save someone else's life. That's a great moment for a family to have a conversation about what it means to think about, you know, all the kind of affordances of life. Every time we get into a car, every time we step out the door, really, we don't know what's going to happen. Life is quite random, quite unexpected. Full of twists and turns. And, you know, it's good to think about these things and not in a morbid way, but just in a way that, you know, this is preparing you for what life might bring. And so having a conversation at that moment feels really rich. We talk about, of course, when you have a child thinking about, you know, how do I protect this child? How do I make sure that they end up in the right hands should anything happen to me? This is, of course, a moment when people end up doing their paperwork and getting serious about all of the logistical things that need to happen when you're caring for another human being in the world. We talk about the moment that kids graduate from college, which this is a you know a little secret of HIPAA laws, but once your kid turns 18 you no longer have access to their medical records and should something happen to them and they end up in the hospital, you know, doctors really, there's no responsibility for them to involve you in that medical care. It's really the child's responsibility at that point, unless the child has a living will or, you know, a statement that says I am making my parent, my healthcare agent. So that's a moment where you want to have your kid, Make you their health agent, and make sure that you still have access to their health path. So there are many, many different opportunities throughout life when you can bring up this conversation. and it can be really tricky. I'll just say that, you know, many people are afraid of the conversation, don't want to have it at all, and will do everything to avoid it. My mother is included in that list. And I've had to find some side door ways of having this conversation with her as she ages. And Meredith, you know this, you're in the sandwich generation as well, where you're thinking about how you might talk to your kids about this, but then also talking to your aging parents. So, you know, my mother wants to live forever. And when I asked her about what Medical intervention she might want at the end of life. I was quite shocked by what she said. She was like, I really want you to try to keep me alive at all costs and do everything you possibly can. And here I had just written this book about the possible hazards of that and how, you know, when you have a lot of medical intervention at the end of life, it can create a lot of suffering for people. And people don't know that, they're not aware of what those interventions can do to a body that's quite sick. So I kind of walked her through that and I said, you know, mom, being intubated, for example, being kept on a breathing machine, things like that, you know, those things are last resorts and often don't have great outcomes and can really create a lot of suffering. And she was like, well, you know, if it looks like there's absolutely zero chance that'll come out of it. I was like, mom, there's no such thing as zero chance. In science or medicine, there's always a chance. So these conversations can get really tricky really fast. And so what I ended up doing was taking a side door. And what I mean by that was I said, mom, let's talk about some of your early life and early childhood experiences. Because I feel like I don't know some of those stories about when you were growing up in Brooklyn as her parents were immigrants to the United States from Europe. Right during World War II. And she grew up with parents who didn't speak English as a first language. And she had to be, you know, a conduit to arriving in America and, and assimilating. And she has all these amazing stories of growing up as a kid in actually, she grew up in the Bronx. I was like, tell me some of those stories. And, you know, I hit record on my iPhone. And that just unleashed a flood. Of stories about her first apartment and her first crush and that time that she followed her crush out of school and the school called her parents and were like, Anna is missing. She's, she's gone missing. What's going on? These incredible stories. And I recorded for her for about an hour. And then at the end of that hour, I said, these stories are incredible. Thank you so much for sharing them with me. And now I I want to ask you about the rest of your life. How do you see that going? You know, where do you see yourself living? What gives you joy? You know, what gives you a sense of purpose? How long do you want to work? Where do you want to live? What if you need help? And then she was able because she was in that mode of telling stories about her life and seeing her life as this kind of rich embroidered fabric of history and with a trajectory, then we could go forward and start looking at what the trajectory would look like going forward. And that felt less threatening. It felt less about, you know, the end and more about this is how I want to live. Right. And so I think helping people enter the conversation that way is a a really nice kind of reframe and redesign of that conversation.
0: Well, I also think, to a point, it helps you because you're going to be going through it with her, right? And so I think there's this whole element of death where you're thinking about the person who is dying, but you're not thinking about the people who are surrounding them, right? And what they need and what support they need and how they need to prepare for this. And so I think that was one of the really great things about your book is just seeing all these caregiver guides, you know, like kind of highlighted out. Was that based off of the experience of going through this with your father that you started to think about the caregiver just as much as the person who's going through this?
2: Yes. I mean, often the caregiver suffers more than the person who's dying. You know, the caregiver is contending with the thought of living without this person. The caregiver is dealing with the enormous emotional and physical toll of caregiving. There are 40 million caregivers in this country and it is a invisible piece of work, right? It's not celebrated in our culture and it's largely invisible. And there is, you know, enormous financial cost. People often have to drive out of the workforce. There's physical cost. You know, it can be very physically burdensome to help someone who is, you know, disabled or needs to be rolled or needs help with all of the daily practices of life, feeding and toileting and all that stuff, bathing, you know, we're not trained for that. We're not trained to be nurses. And we have a healthcare system that doesn't provide a lot of support, at-home support for that, which is another reason why it was so great to work with BJ on rebranding hospice as kind of the most holistic suite of care that you can have at the end of life. First of all, it's free, right? It's a Medicare benefit. So we should all be availing ourselves of that. But hospice has a really bad rap. It's almost seen as a death sentence. And people are very hesitant to elect it. They often don't elect it until it's far too late for them to reap the benefits of hospice, which is that you get home care. Hospice comes to you. Hospice will come to your trailer. Hospice will come to your tent you know, I mean, that is the beauty of it. It is palliative to the entire experience of being human. So you're not just a diseased body in need of treating, which is how the medical establishment treats you, but you are a person with a family with complex and tangled relationships. You are a person who may have spiritual longings and needs where you, you want to speak with a chaplain and want to you know, reconcile yourself with the spiritual moment that you're in where you're making this transition. You can avail yourself of comfort care, you know, just being comfortable at the end of life. So, you know, people don't really understand hospice and part of the project of this book was just giving people a sense of the full suite of care that's available to you. You know, the idea that you can ask for a palliative care consult at the end of life where you just, you're asking for comfort. I want spiritual care, I want emotional care, and I want comfort. And a palliative care team at a hospital will help with all of those things, right? And our surgeons and our doctors, as miraculous as they are, as highly specialized as they are, and we can, you know, technologically, we can now prop a body up for a long time, right? But doctors are not trained in treating the whole human. That just needs to be a part of medical training, and it's not. And so we wanted to give readers the whole sense of the suite of care that's available to them and to give them a sense of agency, you know, that they are the designers of this experience. That doesn't mean that they can control this experience, right? There's many things that we can't control. But thinking of yourself as a designer who can ask questions, you know, for example, a very tactical tip that we give people when they're dealing with medical teams is, don't come in with thirty questions. Come in with three, because medical teams have limited time to talk to you. They will be overwhelmed, as anyone would be, by thirty questions. But if you ask three really important questions, they can get to those, and you're not going to remember the answered thirty questions anyway, right? And then have someone by your side who can record the answers to those questions, probably on you know on an iPhone these days, because. You're going to be so overwhelmed and so stressed out in that moment, you're not going to remember the answers anyway. So make sure to record them, either write them down or record them. So, you know, little tactical tips like that, that I think people may not know about and that end up being really impactful in terms of your care.
3: So I want to go back to something you said a couple of minutes ago, Shoshana, which is you talked about the organ donation opt-in experience in the United States when you get your driver's license. You know, you've probably read some of the stuff from Dan Ariely, particularly in his book Predictable Irrationality. You know, and he talks about organ opt-in rates in various European countries and how they vary dramatically. Even countries that are culturally similar like Germany and Austria can have dramatically different participation rates, and he attributes it to the default choice. In some countries it's opt-in and some choices it's opt-out. And it seems like a lot of the issues you're pointing to are so overwhelming and so challenging for people to talk about that as a society, as a culture, we could go a long ways towards improving the design of end of life by somehow, you know, designing an intelligent set of defaults that most people are going to follow. And I have no idea how you could possibly get that through governments. I assume that's probably a state government issue rather than a federal government issue. And I can't imagine how we could ever have those debates but i'm wondering like you you highlighted a couple of points around like opt in to hospice like that could just be yes you're opting into hospice when you turn 18 yes your parents can still have access to your hipaa records for some period of time i mean are there other inflection points in the experience that you think if we just switch the default things might be better for people
2: yes absolutely and i love that you asked that question because these things do need to be Operationalized in a way. They need to become a part of our lives, right? And the idea of opt in, opt out, like I truly believe that every single person should do a mandatory healthcare directive, you know, in a very young age, like sh- a shockingly young age. I would say at 18, really, when you become an adult, that is a moment for a conversation when you talk about. Who is going to speak for you should you not be able to speak for yourself? And this came up in terms of HIPAA laws and your parent no longer being able to speak for you when you turn 18. You know, that should be something that universities mandate as you graduate. (laughs) As you graduate, it's time for you to think about the entire arc of your life. And you're about to go into a career. You're about to go out and meet the person you might spend your life with. You're also going out and taking responsibility for yourself as an adult. And that means taking on some of the mantle of responsibility. You know, with great power comes great responsibility. And so, yes, fill out your advanced healthcare directive when you graduate from college. I think that there are, uh, you know, moments when as you age, you should think about what your belongings and what all of the accrual of your life look like. So there's this gorgeous book, The Swedish Art of Death Cleaning, written by an 80-year-old woman who talks about how it is your responsibility as someone who is in the last chapter of life to look at all of your accretions, all the stuff you've built up around you, and think to yourself, what am I leaving behind? We all know we can't take anything with us, right? (laughs) So what am I leaving behind for my loved ones to deal with? And I wrote a piece about this, uh, what we keep and what we leave behind, about sitting with my sister in my father's house and going through his old high school yearbooks and his two-decade collection of Popular Mechanics magazine and all of the bikes he kept in the garage and all of the broken appliances and All of the detritus of a life that we then had to sift through, you know, and it's interesting. I think people think that they are keeping things as heirlooms to hand down as an inheritance. And the truth is, is that nobody has room for that stuff. And most people don't want that brown armoire that you've been keeping for 50 years or the china
3: yeah, there's a couple points that you made in there that are really interesting reframing. Like I think people have trouble thinking about their own death because it's just overwhelming. But if they flipped it around and they thought, oh no, wait, like what do I want for the caregivers who are going to be taking care of me? And you've hinted in that in the book with all the caregiver guides and stuff, it's an interesting reframing because you might be much more open to thinking about your final moments on on this earth. You know, if you thought about it in terms of, oh no, I have an obligation to the people that are going to be behind. And therefore, I'm going to take care of my stuff and get rid of it because I don't want them to have to deal with it because, geez, that's like really selfish.
2: Right. Exactly, Bob. I mean, we talk about there being two messes at the end of life. One is the physical mess that we humans create around us, and then the other is the emotional mess. The emotional mess, of course, is much more nuanced and tricky when you're talking about coming to resolution with people who you may have done wrong to, or who may have done you wrong. That's a whole other conversation and we can get into that. But cleaning up the physical mess is really just a matter of like paying attention to it, you know, looking around. It becomes an incredible exercise, practically a full-time job to shut down a life for the caregivers and the family, right? I mean, my sister and I, th- I think, spent two years all told shutting down my, my father's life you know, down to that last safety deposit box at the bank, which we had no key for. And so how can you, as someone who loves the people who you're leaving behind, take care of them in advance by taking care of some of that mess?
1: Can we dig into that a little bit more? Uh, Because you're you're kind of touching on the key pieces of, you know, what we would call a, you know, air quotes here, good death. What does a good death look like? And, And I know that The book describes that in great detail. And in many ways, like it was both comforting to know, like, here are the pieces and overwhelming because I felt like so many of those pieces I hadn't accounted for. But from the individual, so thinking about listeners who are pondering, what does my exit look like? What are the buckets, the elements of of a good death?
2: Mm. Well, I might rephrase that a little bit, Aaron, because, you know, I think having the expectation of having a good death is a lot of pressure. <laughs> death is something that happens to us that we can't really control, right? And I think thinking of creating meaning and a sense of having thought through how you want to live out your days is maybe a better reframing to a good death. Cause you know, this was actually a relief to me. I mean, oftentimes when people die, they are already in a state of unconsciousness or they're asleep or, you know. So how you define a good death, I think to me is how you define a good end of days. Like just thinking about the most that you can have with what's left, right? So. What's important to you? For some people, it's being in nature. For some people, it's being with their loved ones. For some people, it's just having moments of laughter. For some people, it's watching a game. You know, everyone has a different definition of what quality of life and what good looks like. So I I would say thinking about bringing that kind of sense of meaning and purpose to your days in the end is maybe a reframing for a good death. So that's where I would start. And, uh, you know, I would also say that one of the most important things that I learned having experienced the death of my father was that I really needed to be in conversation with him about that much earlier on. So the more that we can design some times to have these conversations, and sometimes it happens at unlikely times, like when we all get together around holidays, you know, We have to carve out some time to just have conversations about, you know, how we live. Again, there's so many pieces to this. There's the medical piece of this and how we interact with healthcare. There's the family piece of this and how we have conversations with each other about what we want our days to look like. And then there's a very personal, deep and personal thought about this, which is, you know, what is meaningful to me? What do I want my days to look like?
1: I like that you've flipped the question on its head. It's less about a good death because you're right. We have no control. And that's what makes death scary to most people, me included, is I don't know when, I don't know where, I don't know how. And I can do some things in life to try to prepare for that. But ultimately, like, it's out of my hands the reframing it of what is a good life is really great. Have you listened to Anderson Cooper's podcast? He has a, a podcast, All There Is, where he talks about the final days with his mother. And her last two weeks, he said, were the best days that they ever had together. And they just spent so much time laughing together, talking, watching movies. And I mean, to me, that's just like, what a precious wonderful way to say goodbye, to be present, and to pass.
2: No, it's it's so true, Aaron. I mean, to me, some of the most intimate moments I ever had with my dad were very quiet moments. At the point where he really could no longer speak in an intelligible way, what was left to do was sit on the couch together and hold hands and watch my children play, or to just lie in bed and watch TV with him. And those were moments I had never really had with him in life. I had never just sat on the couch and held hands with my father in life. But there's a tenderness and an intimacy that comes with people losing some capability where, you know, those roles flip and the daughter becomes the parent and the parent becomes the dependent. And you start to feel the enormous responsibility of that and also enormous gratitude for when it was the other way around. You know, you start to remember this person took care of me, brought me into life when I was utterly useless, right? Carried me around like a loaf of bread, taught me everything I know, helped me learn how to walk, helped me learn how to be in the world. And now it's my turn to help them. And now it's my turn to pay back with enormous gratitude and be their caretaker and help them interpret the world in the way that they can right now which is which is limited but he can still appreciate watching my children play we think about death as this catastrophic experience and and so deeply sad and so full of loss and of course it is many of those things but it's also full of so many gifts that that sense of what matters in life i mean after my dad died i walked around in a in a raw Unguarded state that I really wish I could reclaim now. I mean, I looked people in the eyes in a different way. I stopped and paused and said hello and goodbye to people in a different way. And I tried desperately to hold on to that feeling of presence that you have right after someone dies because it strips you of all of the bullshit. <laughs> you know, it centers you in what really matters. It's really something else i would imagine some of you have experienced this but a friend of mine talks about it as kind of almost like the shock of walking through a plate glass window that you didn't know was there and you're on the other side and this shocking thing that has just happened and it completely changes the way that you see everything and you're able to get to what really matters much more quickly
1: we'll be right back after this word from our sponsors Meredith, I've recently become a really big fan of Athletic Greens and their product AG1. Have you tried it, Meredith?
0: Yeah, I've tried it, and I have to say I look forward to taking it every day now.
1: Yeah, for me, you know, the idea of having one super-researched drink that has everything I need, it's got all the vitamins and minerals that I need, prebiotics, probiotic, it's good for gut health, you're keeping your immune system tuned up, and just, like, feeling your best— The idea of that being in one single drink that I can take every day in the morning is very attractive.
0: Yeah. And you know what else I really love is that AG1 is just one scoop that you put in eight ounces of water. It's not like you have to go out and buy a million different supplements and keep taking all of these pills. You've just got everything in one scoop. So it's so nice and convenient. And it's also so much more affordable.
1: And it actually tastes good too. I mean, I enjoy drinking it every morning along with my coffee. And when I travel, you know, they give you these great travel packs so I can just slip it in my duffel bag when I'm visiting family, going on vacation. I've got it with me, so I'm always at my best.
0: So if you're curious and want to check out Athletic Greens like Aaron and I and their AG1 formula, there's no better time to do it than now. You'll get a year's supply of vitamin D3 and K2 and five travel packs for free. So go to athleticgreens.com reconsidering and get your AG1 today.
1: That's athleticgreens.com slash reconsidering. Now, back to the show.
0: How can we shift the way that people think about death? I know that you mentioned this in the book a little bit, but instead of it this being this fearful thing, everybody goes through it. How do we shift it to celebrating life. And I think that's why it's been more common to talk about like celebration of lives versus funerals. But how do we socialize that better? How do we get there?
2: Well, I love the practice of having early celebrations of life. An old boyfriend of mine who was dying of pancreatic cancer threw himself a ginormous party and invited all of his friends. And it was such an incredibly joyful thing to have a living wake He had music and, you know, plenty of drinking, and people just got on stage and celebrated him in a very public way. And he just sat there and let it all pour over him. And, you know, the idea that, like, we're not there for some of the best celebrations of life is kind of absurd. Like, we're not there for the baby shower. You know, getting married is almost like getting shot out of a cannon. Like, you, can barely be present for that experience. And then a wake or a funeral when people get up on stage and talk about how important you were to them, you're not there for that. (laughs) So the idea of creating these celebratory moments earlier on when we appreciate each other and pour love on each other and tell each other why we're so important to each other and what impact we've had on each other's lives that needs to be ritualized.
3: Weddings are always interesting to me because I've come to think that it's not really about the couple. It's kind of about the institution of marriage. And if you go to weddings and you kind of sit in the back and you look around, you can see all the couples there kind of start to sit a little bit closer and hold hands together. And you realize people are just here to celebrate this crazy idea that we might be able to live together as one. And hearing you talk about wakes now, it's interesting because I could imagine your former boyfriend, you know, sitting there. And in some ways, I You know, if I if I imagine myself in that role, that would be very uncomfortable for me because I just I wouldn't be comfortable receiving that. But in reality, it's really about the people having the opportunity to say that about him. It's not really about him. It's not really selfish in that way.
2: Oh yeah, it was a gift to his community. Absolutely, it was total gift to his community. And I mean, there are different ways of designing this. You know, Bob, you might want to design this in a much quieter way. Like we spoke to another woman who was a very elegant woman who had a very social life. And she just, you know, she had a lunch and there was no purpose to the lunch. She was sitting in a wheelchair at part of the table and very organically, one by one, people from the table would get up and go over and kneel by her and just talk to her very intimately one-on-one about how what an important role she played in their life. And you're so right. That was a gift to them to be able to say those things to her. And it was a gift to her to be able to hear them in a very intimate and private way.
3: Yeah. It reminds me of this notion of, you know, do you have the grace to be able to receive a compliment? And there are some people that can do it and some people that can't. And it's a thing to be able to receive a compliment.
2: Oh, it's so hard. I have such a hard time with it. I look away and avoid and move on and change the subject. But the people who I've seen it do it well, just take a moment and say, thank you. And nothing else. Just thank you.
3: Yeah. I want to shift things just a, just a little bit. So I recently lost my father-in-law. My mother died a few years back. I had a high school friend who lost both of her parents, a woman that I was very close to. And I knew I knew her family really well. And both her parents died quite early when she was in high school and college. And I sort of realized at the time That Debbie had passed a chasm that the rest of us hadn't achieved yet, hadn't come to yet, and it has become this interesting marker. You know, as I close in on my sixties, when I talk to other people now, it's you sort of go through this list in your head: like, are you married? Do you have a dog? Do you have children? Have you lost a parent?
1: (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
3: and it sort of helps me understand where they are in these experiences. Yeah, yeah, it is this interesting marker of of losing a parent and what that
2: means. It's a club that nobody wants to belong to.
3: Yeah. I mean, everybody's going to be in that club. I I think the club you definitely don't want to belong to is losing a child. And that that one seems like a very, I can't recall if you guys got into that dynamic too much in the book, but that seems like a dramatically different experience than losing a parent.
2: You know, that was a third rail for us. We did not talk about that in the book because it is such a different experience than losing someone who has lived a full arc of life. I mean, I've certainly talked to a lot of people who've reached out to me after the book was published who have lost children, and it's something that we tread very lightly in because neither BJ nor I have had that experience. And in a way, we feel like we're speaking out of school, but you're right. I think that that is a different experience because there's a feeling of just unjustness to it it's one thing if someone has experienced a full life and it's quite different if you feel like they were robbed of that.
1: How should we talk to kids about the topic of death?
2: Mm, That's a great question. So we actually have a book within the book that is, I think, seven questions kids ask and how to talk about them. And, you know, the questions that kids ask can be so elemental and get to the heart of this, like, you know, where do you go after you die? You know, grandma said she was going to a better place. Why isn't she taking me with her if she's going to a better place? There's such beautiful, simple questions. And our rule of thumb is to be really honest with kids. Kids are much more intuitive than you might imagine. They know when you are hiding things from them. And they actually can handle quite a lot in terms of this conversation. So we talk about, you know, just asking them what they're comfortable with. Are you comfortable coming to the hospital and visiting mom? Because if not, it's fine for you to go just find something in the house that is meaningful to her that you want her to have. So, you know, we had one child give his parent a hairbrush. And the child said, you know, I used to brush grandma's hair with this. And maybe she'll remember when I used to do that. And can you bring her this hairbrush? Or, you know, do you want to write a letter to your uncle? And I can bring that and read it to him. You don't have to be there because it can be quite scary being in the room when people are connected to all sorts of machines and wires and. Kids don't really understand what's happening, but to be able to send a message and interact in that way can be so meaningful. So anyway, the book within the book is is all about how to talk to children about these things. And our rule of thumb is to be as honest as possible and just ask questions about what they're comfortable with.
1: I love that. And I totally agree with you that kids can handle more than we anticipate. I remember being six and going to the first funeral that I'd ever experienced, kind of my first confrontation with death my aunt cecil who i loved very dearly and it was an open casket i grew up catholic and that's you know so that that really threw me it was like hey there's cecil but she's not there like something's not right and i asked a question which evidently was a faux pas because i got shut down right away i asked my mom and my other aunts who's going to die next because i just i didn't understand like wait this happened like and this happens to everyone so how's this going to unfold and am i am i in line as well and uh, i got nothing i got nothing at all so yeah i think it's it's valuable to talk to kids
2: yeah that's a missed opportunity because i think those are moments when you can say you know yeah you know so here's what death means it means that the normal functions of your body are not working anymore You know, you're not, your heart isn't beating and you're not able to breathe. And we don't know exactly what the experience is, but we know that it's really a peaceful experience. It's kind of like sleeping and it happens to all of us. It's nothing to be afraid of. And we're all together until the very last moment and you're going to be surrounded by love. But, you know, just kind of normalizing what happens to the body, that the body just gets tired. And after a while the you know, the heart wants to take a rest and your breathing wants to take a rest. And and so your body shuts down, but you are still surrounded by love and all the people that matter to you.
3: You know, I I lost some relatives when I was younger, like younger being like in my 20s and, you know, I never saw their bodies. And in my head, I still just feel like I haven't seen them in a long time. It, It doesn't feel to me like they're dead. Whereas in the case of my mother, my father in law, and uncle, there's a handful of other people where I saw the bodies, and they are dead to me, so to speak. I mean, they like when you see the body, you know, like something has changed. And it reminds me of almost like nature films, you know, and like how elephants will hang around one of their deceased relatives. And then once they realize that they're dead, they're they're dead and people get it. A friend of mine uh, who's Canadian was talking about the euthanasia experience that they have in Canada, and his grandmother had opted into that. And he talked about how they all gathered around her. And honestly, it sounded incredibly beautiful and like completely the way that you would want to do it. It was just sounded incredibly dignified and so much better than the options that we have in many of the states here in the U.S. But he talked about his his grandmother had tuberculosis, I guess. So when they were in the room with her, they were all having to wear masks. And then she died. And like 30 seconds goes by and the doctor was like, we can all take the masks off now. You know, and he had this great phrase. He said it was really profound how quickly she went from being a person to being a corpse. And it just reminded me of, you know, seeing my mom when she died, and that transition was was instantaneous. Like you know that they are gone somehow.
2: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I, you know, we have gotten out of the practice of sitting with the body. I mean, that was how we died a hundred years ago. The living room actually in a house was actually where you laid out the body and invited the community in to witness the body. And it was just an everyday fact of life. You saw, you know, more rural life, you saw animals die, you know, in their corpses, you saw family members die. You sat by the bed. And it was a very tangible, palpable experience. Now we cordon death off in icus oftentimes we we aren't there when it happens it can be very abstract and i think you're right it's very hard to process and to get to that real kind of threshold of grief when you know you haven't seen it it's hard to process and you know one of the things we advise people in the book is to know that you do not have to rush to have the funeral home pick up the body. We knew nothing about this when my father died. I mean, my sister and I actually sat down in the room where he lay cold at the computer and Googled, what do you do after someone dies? We didn't know to even call a funeral. (laughs) But the other thing that people don't know is that you have time if you need to sit with your loved one and just stroke their head, hold their hand, dress their body That is all within your rights, you know, and we give very tactical advice for, you know, how if you want more time with that person, you can keep the body, you know, preserved, you can get uh, dry ice and things like that. There are things you can do, but there's a story in the book about a woman who called the funeral home and said, I'd like for you to come pick up my husband now. And when the funeral home arrived, her husband had already been bathed and dressed up in a three-piece suit with a dapper little hanky and his watch chain. And they said, well, you know, we usually do this. How did you do this? And she said, well, I, I, you know, he died on Tuesday, so I've had two days. And she had just taken her time in, you know, sending him off in the way that was important to her, which is how he wanted to show up in life, in that suit with his watch chain and his hanky. And that can be such a beautiful moment And there are many, many traditions that have this practice. You know, I'm Jewish, and there's a practice of bathing the body right after they die and dressing the body in a white cloth, you know, the feeling that you're kind of going cleanly out of life into what's next in this white garb. And those can be really meaningful, beautiful rituals, which help you process that transition. I'm wondering if you
3: could talk about kind of the next phase that comes after that, which is mourning. Because in the same way that we've sort of stopped hanging out with the body, so to speak, and, you know, really recognizing that transition, we don't really have these official periods of mourning. And again, like my father-in-law just died a couple of months ago as we record this. And I think my wife is struggling a little bit, like with what are the public symbols of mourning and how are people around her supposed to think about that? And it's sort of like, well, it's been two months, are you over it yet? You know, <laughs> and there's, there's no, like, it's a culture, we just don't have a way of thinking about
2: Morning. Oh, yeah, it's so true. And first of all, I'm so sorry about your father-in-law. And this is another thing that we have really lost as a culture. We've lost these public signs of grief. You know, you used to hang crepe in the windows and wear black and, you know, there's a practice of kind of ripping your clothing. There are so many beautiful practices that are a public exhibition of what you've just been through And the problem with not having those is that we end up in this place as grievers where we're never sure, like, you know, can I talk about this? Is this person going to receive this well? Is this going to make someone super uncomfortable? They're not going to know what to say. It's going to be so awkward. And so we end up just kind of walking around holding this grief and mourning to ourselves. And I really, really, truly believe that this should be a community experience that we should make space for it as a community. And we talk a lot about, you know, like what to say to a grieving person, because that can be very hard to figure out too. You know, we just like fall all over ourselves. You know, we don't know what to say. And some really powerful things I think that I've heard have been helpful to mourners have been to say, you know, just like, I hate that this is happening to you. I hate that you're having to suffer through this loss. And I would just, I would love to hear some stories about your father or your uncle or your child sometime, you know, just to keep that memory alive. Sometimes people end up making the loss about themselves because they they just don't know how. Like, this is so hard for me. I can't, I'm so shocked by this. And we really encourage people to think about these kind of circles, concentric circles of grief that the mourner is at the center of the circle. And the next circle out is family members, immediate family members who are grieving. And the next circle out is community. And the next circle out is coworkers. And that everyone in those outward circles are there just to give to the inner circle. That, In in other words, it's not about their loss. It is about the inner circle's loss. And to think in that way is also a reframing. So, for example, asking the grieving person, what do you need right now? I'm here. What do you need right now? I can I can do anything. And, of course, that comes from a great intention of wanting to help. But that also puts the burden on the griever to think about what they need <laughs> in the moment when they are crushed with grief, immobilized with grief. So instead of asking what they need, just Make some assumptions and show up. Show up with a hot meal. Show up and say, you know, I'm on my way to the grocery store. I'm going to pick up some things. You know, just give me your list. Show up and say, you know, I would love to spend a couple of hours doing some laundry for you. So, you know, instead of asking the question, just showing up.
1: I want to flip this a little bit on its head here. One of the things I really struggle with is, you know, when I've had people in my life who I know are dying, I'm afraid to go see them because I feel absolutely unequipped. I don't know what to say. I don't know, like I can't comfort them. I don't know what to do. And so therefore I kind of default to I'm nothing. And I would like to be better at that. How might we be better when we know someone is dying?
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's really hard and it puts us in touch with our own mortality, right? Which in a way is the most terrifying thing is that you start, there's this weird transference that happens where you think, am I dying? (laughs) And you start getting much more attentive to that little pain in your side. (laughs) It's a funny thing that happens. I would say, Erin, that it's really not about talking and it's all about listening. It's all about just being there. And this is something that I really had to learn with my father was it was no longer about, you know, asking what he needed and asking him how he was and how we could fix things for him. And it was just more about sitting there, slowing down and listening and being there. And I think we underestimate how much people just need presence and to be listened to in those moments. And it's not about anything that we could possibly say, right? It's just sitting there and saying, hi, I just wanted to, you know, spend some time with you and would love to hear what you're thinking about, how you're doing.
1: Yeah, I appreciate that. How has looking so closely at death changed you personally?
2: I design the moments of of everyday life very differently. So when my kids walk out the door, it doesn't matter what I'm doing, I run up from the basement and I force them to look me in the eye and give me a hug and say goodbye. I really appreciate moments, very, very tiny moments of joy when I'm walking with my dog and his tail is up and he's alert and he's dashing through the bushes and he is fully present in his experience, it allows me to be fully present in my experience walking with him. It is the tiniest moments, I think, that make up the fabric of our lives. And seeing that those will end can be the greatest way to be present in what is. There's this beautiful saying by the Buddhist teacher, Joanna Macy, this moment you're alive. So you can just dial up the magic of that at any time this moment you are alive. You can dial up the magic of that at any time. And so it may sound strange, but I really believe in this kind of Tibetan practice of thinking about death like five times a day because then every time a flock of birds passes in your window above, every time you feel the sun on your face, every time your child does something which seems small but you is miraculous because you brought that creature into the world. Every time you get a longer than usual hug from a friend, you just sink into those moments.
3: So Shoshana, we like to leave the show kind of with a standard question we ask, which is always a little interesting for folks. It's kind of a reverse mentoring question. And so I'll ask you to take a moment and try to imagine yourself as a 25-year-old kind of where you were in life, what you were doing, where you were living, who you were with, you know, what you were thinking as a 25-year-old. And then I want you to imagine having coffee with that 25-year-old, and I want you to try to imagine what that 25-year-old would say to you now, right? What did that 25-year-old know that maybe you need to be reminded of at this point in your life?
2: Mm, That is a great question. I think that 25-year-old would say to me, don't forget that you have the courage to do things that not everybody has. Don't stop being courageous and don't stop taking risks. There's going to be a lot of responsibility that you're going to head into. Right now at 25, I'm single. I'm free as a bird. I can do whatever the hell I want. That's not always going to be true. But don't forget to be free. Don't forget to take risks. Don't forget to be courageous. It's
3: lovely. Thank you. Can you just share with us quickly some places that people can find out about you on the web?
2: Oh, sure. So I am at Shoshana Berger, most places on Instagram and Twitter, although I don't know what's happening on Twitter right
3: now. <laughs> Who does, really? <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. Haven't visited that neighborhood in a while. We have a website for the book, which is the initials of the book, a beginner's guide to the end. so a b g t e dot com. <laughs> and you can certainly find me at IDEO. I you know you'll find my my whole other life there as a designer and a storyteller. And, you know, IDEO is still really interested in leaning into the design of this experience. So I try to make this both personal and professional and work with, you know, people out there who are interested in thinking about how we age and what that experience looks like.
1: Fantastic. Thank you so much for being on the show.
2: Thank you so much. This was a great pleasure. Thank you for inviting me on.
1: It was a heavy topic, but a really important topic because death is its coming for all of us. Meredith, start with you. What were your takeaways from what we heard from Shoshana?
0: Well, my first takeaway is I need a nap. That was a lot. However, I feel better coming out of this conversation, just knowing that I'm a little bit more equipped to talk about it, to handle it, to address things. But I think the one thing that I that like really drew me was thinking about death can make you live a more present and fulfilled life. And when Shauna said, you know, she thinks about death five times a day, or she thinks about them during these significant milestones in your life, she's right. I think we just take so much for granted, and we assume that we're going to have it tomorrow, and, and the next day, and the next day, and just kind of made me change my mindset a little bit to realize. You got to live every day to the fullest because you don't know when it's going to be your last.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Bob, how about you? Yeah, I'll, I mean, I'll echo what Meredith said. I'm not sure that you have to be so morbid to be thinking today could be my last. But there is something about knowing that death comes for us all and that it's omnipresent that I think might help you focus a little bit and make you have more gratitude. You know, and she had this great quote at the end it was, uh, it's the tiniest moments that make up the fabric of our lives. You know, and, and I, I think we're recording this close to the holidays, and I, all of us are going to be making pies and sitting with children and sitting with loved ones. And, it's, you know, the holidays are actually kind of these tiny moments of doing things together. And there's no reason we couldn't be doing those tiny moments and really enjoying them and having tremendous gratitude for them all the time. I think probably my main takeaway, and again, I've, I've been through this recently and then also a few years back with my mom. So the topics, while it's heavy, it's not unfamiliar to me. So I think about it a little bit differently, having dealt with it directly. What I really liked about some of the stuff Shoshana was talking about is trying to flip it into a design problem. You know, and I, I think of design as almost this philosophical approach to how do we live with intention. And this is almost like, well, how do you how do you live with intention, including how do you die with intention? So I liked that framing of it. I also really liked where she ended up with that a lot of dying is thinking about the people you're leaving behind. What can you do to help them? And I think you can help yourself switch out of this selfishness, you know, self-centered approach to dying and, and all your fears. And like, I don't want to confront dying cause I'm afraid of it. Or I don't want to deal with it. It's easy to put off. You know, if you think about that from your point of view, then it's easy to put off, you know, but if you think about it from the point of view of those that you care about that are going to have to take care of things after you're gone, you know i suspect you would engage with a lot of the questions and issues and challenges more proactively
1: yeah that that quote it's the tiniest moments that make up the fabric of our lives i feel like hitting like the you know what is probably the midway point of my life has connected me with that a lot more you know a while back we talked to kieran sedia about his one of his earlier books midlife and he pointed that out once you can see the finish line your perspective really shifts I've recently taken some time off and I feel like having my attention, control of my attention has allowed me to connect with that idea that Shoshana was pointing out a whole lot better. I feel so much more present and aware of my kids, how they're growing and changing, you know, just like, I don't know, simple things of during the fall, walking my dog, the leaves coming down on us, you know, with the breeze and I just you know, I was dialing up the magic as she described that quote that she shared with us. I feel like I can do that better because I have my attention. So that's a takeaway for me. I liked how she flipped my question on its head. What is a good death? You know, her answer was, "Well, this is what a good life is." So that's a big takeaway for me. And also, there are some things I need to do to get my ducks in a row. I, f- I have a will. I have you know, uh, power of attorney. All of those other Documents and stuff. And I thought that was enough, but it really isn't. And I think I just need to have some open conversations too with my wife about, you know, here's what I would like. Here's how I'd like to think about this.
3: Yeah. My wife and I went through this a few years back. And and when you go to this, the family attorney, you know, they have a whole litany of questions. And Many of them actually, when it's you dying or your wife dying, strangely enough, those you can kind of get through. There's also this whole thing of, I can't remember what they called it. It's like the catastrophic plan, which is what happens if the entire family dies. You know, you're traveling together and a plane goes down. And that one was a little hard to get your arms around. The other ones, you know, there are people that manage you through these things. It's not like you have to sort out the whole thing on your own. Well, I have to say, I'm glad there's a manual out there. I'm glad there's a book that can
1: just walk you through here all the pieces if you are you know going through this as a caretaker if you are someone who is you know maybe gotten a diagnosis because that is that's covered in the book too here's what you should do and you know the advice is don't do anything just you know take a breather here so you can process that it's great that they have written this book cuz i think it's going to help a lot of people
3: well look as we as we close this episode i will say that when you do think about this topic and i'm obviously older than the two of you guys and i still like to think i'm not quite at the halfway point because i sort of fantasize about how long i might live but nonetheless you know you do start to see the end you know when when people around you start to die you see that the finish line is coming for you as well and it does make you appreciate things and so not surprisingly i appreciate you guys i appreciate the opportunity to do this show i appreciate the fact that people are listening to it hopefully they're getting value from it i'm very grateful to have the opportunity to talk about all these things together
0: Reconsidering is created by Aaron Walter, Bob Baxley, and me, Meredith Black, with editing help from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. Original music for the show was written and performed by Kimo Maraki. You'll find a full transcript of this episode and all the links mentioned at reconsidering.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player to catch future episodes and discover the treasures of the Reconsidering Library. To support the show, we'd be ever so grateful if you'd leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Your review will help others discover the show. And life, like the seasons, is ever-changing. But satisfaction can be found every day when we tune in. Until next time.